0: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the blessing of it, for your Holy Spirit that illumines it and makes it clear to us. We pray, Father, that you would uh, make our spirits receptive today. Whatever it is you're trying to do in us, may we allow you to do it for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name. We pray, Jesus, amen. I want to begin by reading to you um, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Um, give you uh, the whole scope of what, we're cover- what we've covered here. But I want to read it to you out of the J.B. Phillips translation or, or version. Just listen. When all kinds of trials, beginning in verse 2. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. But let the process go on until that endurance is fully developed and you will find you have become men of mature character with the right sort of independence. And if, in the process, any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem he has, only to ask God who gives generously to all men without making them feel foolish or guilty. Amen. And he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given him, but he must ask in sincere faith without secret doubts as to whether he really wants God's help or not. The man who trusts God, but with inward reservations, is like a wave of the sea carried forward by the wind one moment and driven back the next. That sort of man cannot hope to receive anything from God. And the life of a man of divided loyalty will reveal instability at every turn. The brother who is poor may be glad because God has called him to the true riches. The rich may be glad that God has shown him his spiritual poverty. For the rich man, as such, will wither away as surely as summer flowers. And one day, the sunrise brings a scorching wind. The grass withers at once, and so do all the flowers. And all that lovely sight is destroyed. Just as surely will the rich man, in all his extravagant ways, fall into the blight of decay. The man who patiently endures the temptations and trials that comes to him is truly a happy man. For once his testing is complete, he will receive The crown of life which the Lord has promised to all who love him. I love that version of that. Gives a good color to it, doesn't it? Let me ask you a question What have you done today that no one but a Christian would do? What have you done? Have you rejoiced in the God of your salvation? Have you rejoiced in your salvation? Now, if I came to your house and I drove all the way to your home in the middle of the week and I and I, I got really excited because I wanted to give you a gift. I texted you earlier to let you know I was coming and you were eagerly waiting for me to arrive. And then after all that anticipation, I walked in and I handed you a simple keychain. How would you react? Outwardly, you'd probably be very courteous to me and thank me, but that's about all it would be. You wouldn't be very excited about a keychain. I'd leave and you'd kind of scratch your head and you'd go, what was that about? (laughs) Now, imagine the same scenario, but instead of a keychain, I gave you two tickets to a trip to Ireland. And the plane tickets to get there, obviously. You might be a little more excited about that, wouldn't you? Maybe show a little more appreciation. Now imagine if I drove up to your driveway in a brand new RV, fully equipped with onboard Wi-Fi, 4K UHD 50-inch flat screen TV, king-size bed, fully equipped kitchen, bathroom with a shower, everything that you needed, and then handed you $10,000 in spending money I told you that I had arranged a month's paid vacation with your boss and handed you the keys on a keychain. What kind of reaction would you have? You wouldn't let me go. What was that? I'll get a kiss. I wouldn't be far off if I described your reaction as being full of joy, would I? Now consider something. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh into our own personal world to bestow upon us an incredibly merciful grace gift. He came willing to be crucified and to take on our guilt and punishment, to shed his own blood for each one of us so that we who believe might be forgiven for every single sin that we have ever committed or will ever commit. And be able to live the rest of our earthly lives with the guarantee of eternal life. Consider also that he rose from the dead, fulfilling the death sentence that we were scheduled to die. He ascended into heaven and is now presently preparing a place for you and I to dwell in eternity. In his constant presence where we will never lack anything ever again. Now further consider that in the meantime, he has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. And that we, through our identification with Christ, by faith, are recognized card-carrying citizens of the heavenly realm because we have been adopted as his children. We are children of the king. In addition, doesn't end there, We have a myriad of benefits available to us both now and on into eternity, and all of this was given to us gratis, free of charge. Now think on the fact that God chose to knock on your door one day and handed you the keys to an eternal home in paradise if you accept it by faith. Think about that. Why then do so many of us respond with about as much joy as if he handed us a simple keychain? Robert Louis Stevenson once said that to miss the joy is to miss all. Someone else has said that the surest mark of a Christian is not faith or even love, but joy. So let me now repeat my first question. What have you done today that no one but a Christian would do. The one thing that we all should have done and should be doing is rejoicing in our position in Christ. Amen? Regardless of our present circumstances. Is that right? In fact, that attitude of rejoicing should be the very thing that gets us through our lousy circumstances. As we approach today's text, James is going to bring us back to that reality one more time. He's been telling us that if, in fact, we possess this incredible gift of faith, that if it is indeed true, it will change the way that we view life and we can rejoice in the time of trials. In verses 1 to 4, which I just read, he says that if we have true faith, we can rejoice in trials. Why? Because we realize it accomplishes something good inside of us. It builds endurance, perseverance. It produces spiritual maturity, wholeness, and spiritual character. Then in verses 5 to 8, he addresses the fact that even if we find that we're having a difficult time making sense of all the junk that we're going through, that we're really not getting it, God. Why he's letting us go through all of this stuff That if we lack understanding and wisdom to deal with our lot, we can still rejoice. Why? Because we realize that we are promised and guaranteed assistance by God through prayer simply for the asking. We can have wisdom if we ask God simply and sincerely and properly for wisdom with single-hearted commitment to him and his perfect will, that he will give it to us. It says, generously and purely and without the second thought or negative word, he will not hold it back from us. James, in the shadow of his older half-brother Jesus, reminds us, quite simply, ask and it will be given. Seek and you shall find, knock and and it will be opened. But look, he says, if you want to vacillate and hesitate and go back and forth between two opinions, what the world offers for answers and what God says, trying to hold on to the one and not let go of the other, then you're not going to get anything. Not one thing. Zilch. Why? James says, because God's ways are not man's ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher. His wisdom is repeatedly counter to the world's ideas. And at times, it's absolutely paradoxical. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 9, we read these words of Paul. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To verse 28. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what's it say? Wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast. In the Lord. Now, there is no better place to see this paradox than in the way that we view our status in life. Wisdom will change the way that we view it. Okay? If we have heavenly wisdom, we will think of our position in this life, our status in this life, especially the materialistic side of it, in a completely different light. Okay, look at James verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 now. This is the text we're going to look at in depth today. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls And its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now James here is dealing with a Christian's attitude. Our attitudes. And he's looking at it from two different parts of town. The uptown elite and the downtown depressed. That's basically what he's looking at it from. And he says that it doesn't much matter which side of town you live on, if you are truly following Christ, your joy is going to be based on the same exact thing, your heavenly position, not your earthly possessions. That's what this text basically says. In other words, it's not your outlook that counts, but the uplook that counts. What is your attitude based on this morning in your life? Your outlook or your uplook? It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. The person of true faith can rejoice in his salvation, James says, because he realizes first that earthly poverty pales in the light of heavenly prominence, verse nine. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And you're saying, what high position, James? What are you talking about? This is James' word to the poor. Now, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians that have been dispersed and displaced from their homes. Some of them have lost their homes. And they're kind of vagabonds, just going around Palestine trying to make a life for themselves, being persecuted, being looked down upon by everybody because they're Christians. Now, this whole concept of the rich versus the poor is pretty significant in the book of James as we find him returning to it on more than one occasion. For example, look at chapter two, verse two. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. So he's gonna be talking about favoritism here. He says, listen, my brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This is a very important concept of James. Look at chapter, James chapter five for a moment. Here's some pretty stern words. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Yeah, I don't want to be the target of that one. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. You can hear John the Baptist's voice in this one, can't you? It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields. He's talking about these people that hired laborers but never paid them. Verse six, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. James has some pretty hefty things to say about the rich and about the poor. And they are reminiscent of Jesus' words, I believe, In Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 21, where Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, what Jesus is saying here and what James is referring to, is the exact opposite of the American way, of the teaching in America, even in churches. We're all about laying up treasures, aren't we? But what happens when they're all stripped down? What happens when we're all stripped down Finding ourselves in a humbled position, materially speaking. James seems to indicate that it's not necessarily a bad thing for us. That's what he's saying. In fact, it can be a very good thing for us. Something actually we can exalt in, James says. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Those who are in low circumstances, those who are poor and afflicted, ought to rejoice loudly, James says, and the word he uses is the word exult. In fact, it refers to proclaiming loudly something you have a right to boast in. This is not a sinful, prideful sense, but this is something that you can really take heart in. That it doesn't matter if I'm poor on earth, I'm rich in heaven. What he's urging his readers to do here is to view their circumstances on earth, not necessarily economically or even socially, but to think about them theologically and biblically. Verse nine, by the way, is a command. James commands that those who are in a low social status are to rejoice in their high spiritual status. He's bringing in this paradoxical thought as a corrective. This is spiritual wisdom applied. He's saying that every believer, regardless of their impoverished place in the world, needs to adopt a joyful response to the fact that he or she is a child of God. My daughter's in Haiti right now. Poorest place on the face of the earth. And when when she went the last time, she came back, and those of you that have gone with the church on mission trips have come back from Haiti and you worship with the Haitians. I've never been there But they come back saying, I cannot believe the joy that they have in Christ. And they have nothing on this earth. We can rejoice in the fact that we're children of God. In essence, he's saying that regardless of your earthly poverty... You can glory in the fact that you're the king's son or daughter. You are in high standing. Even if you've got a low position here, rejoice in your high position there in Christ. James isn't ignorant of the painful circumstances of his readers or their experience. He's not being callous to them. He knows that poverty is an extreme trial in this life. No one likes to be in need, do they? No one enjoys being poor, But James says that the way you respond to your material situation in life indicates where your true allegiance lies. If you have a heavenly perspective, your earthly circumstances will not dictate your joy quotient. That's what wisdom will do for you, James says. In the world's eyes today, even as they were being viewed in James' day, Christians may be looked at as inferior in many different ways. You may be looked at financially inferior, socially, or even some racially inferior. But man's standard is not the measure of prominence, is it? God's standard of measure, by his standard of measure, every Christian is spiritually prominent. Every one of his children are in the upper class. The cross of Christ is the great leveler of humanity, isn't it? And eternity by that matter. There's no one in heaven that's looking down their noses at you because you're poor, you're second class, or you haven't got the right clothes on today. No one's keeping track of whether or not you hang out with the hipster crowd or the cool crowd. No one cares if you're a farmer or if you're an executive. In God's eyes, you are in a position of high degree. High degree. That's what the word high position means here in verse 9. James says literally that the brother of lowly status on earth must continually rejoice in his height. Literally, it says, in his height. Literally, that's his exaltation. In Christ, he has true spiritual dignity and prominence. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, he may be hungry on earth, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has true riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he is received by God. And so he can accept his deprivations, his humiliation, his lowliness, and rejoice because he doesn't need anything more. His position before God is enough. Now, it goes without question that historically, the church has grown most significantly amongst who? The poor or the rich? The poor. It's historically factual. It's grown most significantly amongst the poor, not the rich. Jesus was pretty clear in his assessment. You remember what he said? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that pretty much just hangs us all, doesn't it? Because by standards of the early days of Jesus, we're all rich. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that Jesus said such a thing? Alistair Begg explains, those of us who are affluent are used to buying ourselves into every place. There's not a ticket we can't get, a concert we can't attend. There's not a ride we can't take. And so we assume God operates on the same basis. Are we fooled? It's harder for a rich person, Jesus said. Why? simply because the attachment we have toward our material wealth weighs us down. It clouds the reality of our spiritual need, doesn't it? Jesus spoke firmly to the church at Laodicea regarding this false sense of material security. What did he say to them? Revelation chapter three, verse 17. We just went through that a few weeks back. Jesus says, you know what? Because you say I am rich and I become wealthy and have need of nothing you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, the rich can afford to buy their way out of any trial, so to speak. A poor person has no such option. They must rely on God. They must rely upon God's wisdom. And that is a good place to be spiritually, isn't it? That's where God wants us spiritually, isn't it? That's the position we must all come to. James is saying that a person's attitude toward material things is a good index of his spiritual condition. This is one test of faith in which we all need wisdom. And I must confess to you, it's much easier for me to rejoice when I have things than when I don't. You too? But that just shows me that I'm operating with an earthly mindset, doesn't it? If I'm only happy when my earthly situation is materially good, then I'm really not living according to my heavenly position or my possessions in Christ, am I? Uh, The believer's wealth can never be calculated in dollars and cents, can it? I mean, we're rich beyond all estimation. We are rich in mercy. We are rich in grace. We are rich in peace. We are rich in righteousness. We are rich in hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amen? James commands you, Christians who are experiencing this lowly position on earth, hey, keep on rejoicing in the fact that you are the apple of God's eye. You are a child of the king. You are royalty. Are you poor? Do you lack talent? Do you lack looks? Do you lack coordination? Are you a little too fat, a little too skinny? Are you always left out of the group? James says, rejoice. You are of great worth to God. He died for you. You are of great worth to the church because the church can't operate without you. You are of great worth to this world. You know why? Because you carry within your soul the gospel of Christ, which saves souls. God is your father, if you're a Christian. Rejoice in the things that you cannot lose, he says. James is not declaring the typical American prosperity preacher's message. If you do this, then you you will become rich. He's not saying that. If you do this, then you will get this, or you will become that. That's what's proclaimed far too often today. No, James is not saying if you do this, you will become rich. But rather, if you think about your life from this kind of perspective, you will realize that you already are rich. The thing James wants us to understand here first is that earthly poverty pales next to heavenly prominence. Yeah, being in a low position is a test. There's no question about it. And our response to the test really shows us something about how true our faith is. But as much as poverty tests Christians, I believe that prosperity tests Christians even more. And James thought so too. That's why he spent a few more words on the attitude of the rich Christian. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Let's just stop there for a moment. If if the poor man can rejoice in his salvation because he realizes that earthly poverty pales next to heavenly prominence, then the rich man can also rejoice in his salvation because he realizes that his earthly prosperity perishes in the shadow of heavenly permanence. That's a mouthful. This is James' word to the rich now. Now, some have suggested that James is speaking of non-believers here, and he doesn't identify the rich man as a brother. I believe, though, that the context implies that James is speaking about Christians in both cases. The sentence structure here, as well as many other reasons, drive me to support that. But James understood the danger that material wealth presents to the Christian and takes the opportunity to warn them as well. Too often, even Christians can become possessed by their possessions, can't they? They begin to place their confidence in earthly riches rather than in the Lord. Again, James is clearly dealing with attitudes here. Rich men love to talk about their wealth, even boast about it. The Greek philosopher, biographer Plutarch, born about the same time James wrote this letter, quipped that most men, quote, think of themselves as robbed of their wealth if they are prevented from displaying it, unquote. But you know what James advocates? He advocates that a rich man should boast rather in his humiliation. Interesting. Another paradox, He says that the rich brother should adopt an attitude of humility or lowliness because he realizes that his wealth means absolutely nothing when it comes to his salvation. He didn't buy his way into heaven, nor could he. He must guard against this tendency of focusing on his wealth as a motivation for his rejoicing. Instead, James indicates, is that he rejoices because he understands that though he was rich in earthly possessions, he was a slum case spiritually. Steeped in sin and desperately in need of the grace of Christ for his salvation, just like everybody else in the world. He can glory in that humiliation. For if he had never come to that realization, he would have perished right along with his riches. And that's what James is trying to say here. He has a whole new view of life. He can glory in that humiliation, precious poverty. Amen? One commentator put it this way, as the poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty, so the rich brother forgets all his earthly riches. And by faith, the two are equal. Remember the situation that Jesus encountered in Mark chapter 10? Turn turn on Mark chapter 10 for a moment, beginning in verse 17. See, who do you relate to in this story? Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice he skipped. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not covet. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or goods. Jesus didn't say that. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell you all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And you know the story, right? What happened? At these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. That is a sad story. Face to face with Jesus, he wants to know what to do to eternal life. Jesus said, keep all the commandments to the T if you could do it. Well, I've already done that. Well, no, you haven't, and here's proof. Give away everything you own and come follow me. Now, imagine the scenario if it ended differently. Imagine the scenario if he fell down on his knees and he gave away everything that he had and he got up rejoicing and skipping away, freed from the chains of the riches which bound him. Spiritually free to trust only in Christ. That's exactly what James is getting at. You know, we have an example of that in Scripture. The exact opposite of what this rich young ruler did. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. You remember the situation with Zacchaeus? Jesus is entering Jericho. A man by the name of Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and it says in verse 2 and he was what? Rich. He was wealthy. And Zacchaeus was trying to see this Jesus. He climbed the tree, right? Jesus comes to the place, stops, looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, "Hey, I'm coming to your house for lunch. Let's go." Zacchaeus comes down, right? And receives Jesus gladly, the opposite of the rich young ruler. And then what happens to him? This rich Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, in verse 8, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Why? Because he gave away that stuff? Absolutely not. Because he put his trust in Jesus and that stuff didn't matter to him anymore. James says that Christianity should change our view of life. Has your view of life changed since you became a Christian? Now, (laughs) before we're so quick to answer, Have we simply Christianized our worldly perspective by adding some religious language to it? It's a fair question, isn't it? I heard someone make this statement the other day and it really drove it home. Think about this now. It really is too bad that somehow or another in the last 50 years in Western Christianity, we have not only wrapped the flags around the cross, but we have wrapped dollar bills around the cross. And James cries out from the first century, no, no. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's totally different than that. James says this poor believer rejoices in the fact that he is rich in Christ and no longer needs to worry about his earthly status in order to be worthwhile. He has true wealth. He's a child of the king. He also says the rich believer is to rejoice that in Christ he has been brought down low to where riches no longer are his focus. There are no longer a test of his status in this life. He does not have to worry about losing his spiritual place with Christ if he loses his financial financial net worth. It doesn't matter to Christ. He now understands that the true barometer of spiritual status is not cash, but Christ. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verses 17 and 19 says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on this uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life Indeed. Now, there's nothing wrong with possessing wealth or being poor, either one of those things. There's nothing wrong with either one. But perspective is necessary in both positions. If there's anything wrong with material wealth, it's our propensity to place our faith in it, our security in it. You see, wealth makes it difficult for a man to humble himself. A Christian should be a one priority person. And there's no question that Jesus taught this. He knew the magnetism of materialism. In verse 24 of Matthew 6, Jesus said, No one can be loyal to two masters. He is bound to hate the one and love the other or support the one and despise the other. No man cannot conserve God and the power of money at the same time. Now, Christians cannot have a faith that is set on fire for Christ when they are torn in more than one direction at the same time. Would you agree to that? This is where faith wanes. This is where the church dies. John White, in his book, The Fight, says this. He says, it is precisely here where many Christians fail. Attracted by money or by pleasure, by a career or by position or prestige, They try to close their eyes to the fact that human nature makes it impossible for us to have more than one supreme goal in life. Ask them what their supreme goal is and they'll say to glorify God, to serve Christ and so on and so forth. But watch their lives and you'll be puzzled. Talk to them and you'll find a strange lack of excitement about the glory of God. You'll also find little evidence of a vital faith, unquote. Now that's what James is really hammering home. That's the reality. What comes first, Christian career person? Your Christianity or your career? What comes first? See, after you answer that, then look at your life. Does your life bear out your answer? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What do you spend most of your resources, your energy, your thought life, your finances investing in? What is your hope? What is your boast? These are all very, very pertinent questions, aren't they? As James' particular word to the affluent is simply this. When you apply godly wisdom to the reality of life, the stark realization is that riches are fleeting. And beyond that, we ourselves, in our own human pursuits, are frail, we are fragile, and we are quickly fading away. As I've said before, at the end of the game, Just like in Monopoly, it all goes back in the box. All of it goes back in the box. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, Solomon writes, grievous. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. 1 Timothy 6 again, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of it either. Friends, you know what? All our material stuff is not true treasure. This is the lesson that Jesus drove home in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who just as he finished building more barns to house his hoarded acquisitions, met his end. And here's Jesus' lesson of that parable in a few short words. Write it down, because we're gonna all need to remember it. Life is not defined by what you own, but by what will last. Life is not defined by what you own, but by what will last. The man in the parable's treasure was misplaced. It was rooted here and not in eternity. He was saving up treasure for himself. He was not rich toward God. What are you living for? Where is your treasure? Are you rich toward God? That's what James is asking. And we need to take a long, hard look at that. Because James says the man of true faith rejoices in his heavenly position, not his earthly possessions. Why? Because he realizes that he, along with his possessions, will eventually perish. Verse 10 says he will pass away. For the sun, in verse 11, rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Right in the middle of them. James pictures the swift withering of human life in the flowers of Palestine. Field flowers bloomed abundantly in the spring there, but they didn't last very long. This dry summer wind blowing in from the Arabian desert, known as the Shirocco, brought blistering heat and could destroy vegetation in a few short hours. This brief life of the flower became a symbol for the brevity and transitory nature of all of our lives. Psalm 103, the psalmist says in verses 15 and 16, our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and we die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. Just as this beauty of the face of the flower, James talks about, was no security against the scorching heat of the sun and the wind, no amount of external beauty, riches, or prestige of this earthly life can stand against the inevitable grip of death. You know it, don't you? Every time we go to a funeral, we figure that one out. And I say it often at funerals that death has a very good success rate. One out of every one person dies. So wise people, James says, build their lives around what's eternal and squeeze in what's temporary, right? Not the other way around. You don't build your life on what's temporary and squeeze in the eternal. Think for a few moments about those two categories, eternal and temporary. What in your life is going to last forever? And what's going back in the box? Now take it a step further. I've done this before in a message previously, years ago. So I'm not going to do it again. I'll just remind you of it. Take a pad of self-adhesive notes and write, on, on, write temporary on them. Okay? Okay? Temporary, kind of like, like stickers like this, right? And then walk around your house, around your life, around your yard, around the church and distribute them everywhere where you need to be reminded. Put one on your car. Put one on the front door of your house. Put temporary stickers on each piece of furniture that you own. Put one on the front of your checkbook. Stick them on all the clothes in your closet. Put them on your iPad and on your TV. Now, then take another set and write eternal on them. And walk around and put those on the things that will last, the things that are eternal. Like, for example, put them on your family, put them on your friends. Go into your office and put one on your boss's forehead. See how he reacts. Or walk up to the stranger behind the counter. Put one on her head. I'll guarantee you it'll be an opportunity for the gospel. Oh, yeah, by the way, put one on the person you most dislike in the world. Oh, and don't forget to put one on your own forehead as well. You see, a Greek poet named Pindar once wrote, if any man who has riches excels others in beauty of form and has proved his strength by victory in the games, let him remember that he puts his raiment on mortal limbs and in the end of it, it's gonna be clad with the earth. See, it doesn't matter if you're pretty, if you're athletic, if you're rich, death strips us of everything everything except that which is eternal. James says we need that kind of perspective in our lives. The rich man will fade away, and James says, in the middle of his restless pursuits, busy with amassing his treasures on earth, he will fade away, not even considering that his life is but a whisper. You realize that? Psalm 39 is a good psalm to meditate on, specifically verses 4 to 6. The psalmist says, Lord, remind me of how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand, the grand scheme of things. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is just a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. It's true, isn't it? So what's your perspective? When you die, and you will, will you be leaving your riches or will you be going to them? That's a question we all need to answer. It really is. A famous sculptor by the name of John Bacon wrote for his own epitaph something that we should get hold of even now as we close. He said this, and I quote in his epitaph What I was as an artist seemed to me of importance while I lived. But what I am as a believer in Jesus Christ is the only matter of importance to me now. So you fill in your own blank. You write your own epitaph. Whatever earthly thing you deem is important today, right now, you will one day leave it behind. I will one day leave it behind. And the important thing is not what treasures you leave here but what treasures you have waiting for you there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing front and center to us the importance of what is temporary and what is eternal. Now, James is, is a, well, he's a hard teacher, but a good teacher, I pray, Father, that these words, we take them to heart. We understand how they apply to our own souls and that we are order our lives by them as your Holy Spirit leads us. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in us. We pray that you would be honored by the way that we live from this point forward. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen.